0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. plan to track how many LGBT-owned businesses have contracts with the city of Chicago sparked a heated debate in City Hall today. We need not
1: victimize, demonize, and discriminate through our words because we are
0: worried about what the size of the pie is going to be for me. Chicago Alderman Ed Burke's hefty legal tab. The ethics board issued this finding against Ed Burke. $2,000 Ed Burke has to pay kind of a slap on the wrist. I see
2: CPD walking the exact same path as L.A. did But we're changing all that.
0: Joining me now to break down those stories and more, we've got WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKenney, Daily Line Managing Editor and City Hall reporter Heather Sharon, and A.D. Quick, government and politics reporter at Crane Chicago Business. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon. Friday. Happy Friday. Okay, Wednesday marked the first Chicago City Council meeting of 2020. Heather, what was on the agenda?
1: Well, I can tell you what was not on the agenda. was probably mm. more interesting than what was on the agenda in that Mayor Lori Lightfoot failed to push through rules that would have allowed consumption of marijuana at certain tobacco shops and cigar bars and hookah lounges. And there was another concerted pushback from Alderman who said that those rules were too rigid and could potentially force people to smoke marijuana in public, in parks. But it was at the third time, actually, that Alderman had balked at some part of the marijuana legalization effort, which is really interesting because that is not governed by the city. This is outside the city's control. These rules were set by the state and there's not a whole lot the city can do to force the state to make changes. Well, the mayor
0: said previously she had the votes to move forward on this. So what happened?
1: Well, you would think that if you had the votes, you would have (laughs) taken the vote, but that's not what happened. So far be it for me to think that the mayor was perhaps overstating the level of support. But there's a real concern that you're going to have events like Lollapalooza coming up and you're going to get into a situation where you have potentially black and Latino youth arrested for marijuana consumption in a state that is getting a lot of attention for legalizing marijuana it sort of sets up a really bad perhaps conflict and the african-american aldermen in particular don't want their stamp of approval on what they see as a law that could continue those disparities
0: well the council passed a resolution to collect data on how many lgbt owned companies have contracts with the city Uh, but that issue sparked some heated debate let's listen I have a
2: concern about the system being manipulated, and I have a concern about, you know, maybe
0: helping someone else and hurting some other folks
2: that's already hurting.
0: That was Alderman Walter Burnett of the 27th Ward. AD, how did the mayor respond to that? Strongly. Yeah.
3: She said, you know, it's not going to be a habit for me to break into council debate on the floor. I'm the president, and I I won't do this very often, but this is a disgraceful debate that we're having here and as a gay proud black woman I thought we were we were beyond this conversation and it was a similar debate in in committee where aldermen were kind of saying well if if this group gets a little bit more does that take away from this group and the thing the mayor said and a lot of other aldermen said backing her up was there's an abundance of city contracts to go around and we should be thinking in an abundance mindset and not using some of these hurtful stereotypes that Lightfoot said she has been dogged by for a lot
0: of her life. We actually have a clip of her speech. Let's listen. As a
1: black gay woman, proud on all fronts, I have to say I'm disturbed by the nature of the committee discussion and the nature of discussion here today. We need not ask anyone's indulgence, patience, or forgiveness or acceptance to be who we are and who we love. And that will never happen as long as I am in this body.
0: Now, Dave, the mayor, as A.D. said, says she doesn't normally weigh in on debates, but this sounds very personal for Mayor Lightfoot. Were you surprised that she spoke this way?
2: I don't think it is surprising. I mean, this is, this is who she is, and I think it's a very personal issue to her, and uh, we know is the case with many, many, many gay and lesbian people who have faced a lifetime of discrimination, you know, they come at this from that perspective. It's like, how are we any different than others who have been given this privilege of of being part of set-asides for contracts and what have you? So I'm not surprised you did that at all.
0: And we should note that the measure passed with only one alderman voting no. That was Alderman David Moore of the 17th Ward. Well, the city council also passed an ordinance to freeze development along the 606 trail Heather, this was a bit of a watered-down version of what was yes. originally proposed. Just explain what's included.
1: So it is a six-month ban on demolition permits along a very narrow strip along the trail, both north and south, and a little bit toward the ends of the trail. What it does not do is ban zoning changes or building permits. The original version of this ordinance would have banned basically any sort of land use approval uh, for 14 months. And what's interesting is that Friday, so the Friday before the city council meeting, the mayor had a press conference and we asked her, "Um, do you support this ordinance? And she said, I don't. It's 100 percent illegal and it's misguided. And uh, and that's that about that. So there was a lot of shock at City Hall when two things happened. One, the chair of the housing committee, Alderman Harry Osterman, uh, scheduled of hearing on it, and then sort of scheduled to vote for it. And behind the scenes, she agreed to support, like I said, like you said, like a watered down version of it. But some form of development stop along the trail has been an issue since 2015, almost the day the trail opened and housing prices shot up all around it, because it's it's a really great place to live now in a way that it wasn't before. So they've got six months, and the aldermen said they would work every day to develop a sustainable long-term solution to gentrification and the lack of affordable housing. Uh, we will be all ears and eyes if they're able to solve this really difficult, difficult issue in such a short period of time. Eighty
0: were the aldermen who backed this plan, were they
3: happy with where it landed? Yes and no. This is something that Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa and Alderman Roberto Maldonado have been organizing around for some time. We've had a series of proposals come out from them about what can be done around the 606. Um They're somewhat satisfied. Stopping demolitions is not nothing. Um, What I'll be interested to see for is we're seeing these gentrification battles play out kind of all over the city. We saw it in a a separate issue around uh, the Obama Presidential Center. The city came out with kind of a, a rough plan of what they want to do to protect homeowners in Woodlawn. So part of what everyone will be watching is what the mayor's, she's got a task force on inclusionary housing, and they're working with all deliberate haste to come up with some kind of citywide proposal that can be tailored around areas that are heating up like the 606 and the Obama Presidential Center.
0: But is le- is the legality of this still in question? No.
1: Her, Her law department said it was a hundred percent legal, legal muster. Yes. yes.
0: Well, yesterday Mayor Lightfoot named the city's first ever director of labor standards. First, what is this department responsible for, Heather?
1: Well, uh, this department is part of the Business Affairs and Consumer Protection Department. So, this office is going to be charged with enforcing the city's minimum wage laws, the city's sick leave law, as well as a brand new law that starts to go into effect July first, which would require business. Businesses to give employees a certain amount of notice of their schedule. And that's going to be a big change for a lot of businesses. And there's a lot of anxiety about exactly how that will work and how this law will be enforced. Uh, so it's a big job. And I was interested to see that uh, the you know new leader is from Pilsen. He has a long history. Andy Fox, Andy Fox has a long history of working on these issues from an almost an advocate, not necessarily somebody who is sort of business from the business community.
0: And this is a new department, A.D. Uh, Talk a little bit more about the impact this could have in Chicago and for Chicago workers.
3: So a lot of reason this department even exists was organizing around wage theft in Chicago, either people not getting their last paychecks or not getting enough paychecks. And there's some concern. uh, We saw this around the discussion over the fight for 15 here in Chicago about whether tipped workers were being fully compensated for their work. This office started under Mayor Rahm Emanuel but had been kind of skeletal, I'll say, and it's still pretty small. It's only six people working in this office, but it's basically in response to complaints that the city was not forcing anyone to comply with labor laws, and there were a lot of businesses who were getting away with stealing wages and skirting people's schedules. But yeah, July 1 is going to be a really interesting deadline for businesses across Chicago with the minimum wage hike and fair work week kicking in.
1: This is probably the most lasting legacy of former alderman Amaya Puar, who is no longer on the city council, but he really championed this and sort of got it included in the 2018 budget. And he convinced Mayor Emanuel to support it back then. Uh, So it's been a slow ramp up. But I think that it will be interesting to see if how Mayor Lightfoot uses this office as a tool to sort of enforce these laws, which a lot of members of the business community are very concerned about.
0: You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. When we break down the biggest local stories of the week, our panel today, Heather Sharone of the Daily Line, A.D. Quig of Crane Chicago Business, and WBEZ's Dave McKenny. Some other stories we're watching today, Cook County Commissioner Larry Sufferden wants to enforce a state cap of 20 weeks of pay for severance deals. The move comes after the CEO of the county-run health system got a year's pay, more than 500000 after he was let go last year. Chicago's 25-year-old 911 system is getting an upgrade. The new system will allow for direct texts, photos, and videos to emergency call centers, and the upgrade is is expected to roll out in late 2023. And the Women's March Chicago is taking place tomorrow at 11 a.m. in Grant Park, but attendees can begin a gathering at 9 o'clock near Ida B. Wells and Columbus Drives. The entrance for people with disabilities is located at Columbus Drive and Monroe Street, and the event concludes at Federal Plaza. The city, Metropace, and CTA are adding extra trains and buses as necessary. All right, let's turn to some other city news. Indicted Alderman Ed Burke was fined $2,000 this week by the Ethics Board. Heather, what brought this on?
1: So this dates back to 2014 when Alderman Burke wrote a letter to a city, a high-ranking city official urging them to support a property tax break for this client. A year later, he recused himself from voting on this property tax break, and that was in accordance with the city's ethics ordinance. However, the ethics board determined that Alderman Burke should have known that it was inappropriate for him to essentially lobby for this tax break while representing this unnamed company. Um, We don't specifically know sort of how this tax break was used, but the property in question is sort of an auto parts manufacturing in the 14th Ward. And what's interesting about this is that this is the second time in about nine months that the ethics board has fined Alderman Burke. And I was surprised that this date's All the way back to 2014. And it certainly made me wonder what else is the ethics board looking at? We don't, you know, they don't give us a list of things they're investigating. And how many more times has Ed Burke done something like this, which runs afoul of the ethics ordinance? So he has to pay $2,000. Further violations of the ethics ordinance occur after October 1st, thereabouts. The fine would now be $5,000, which was part of the ethics reforms that the mayor pushed through uh, back in in July. So this is an ongoing, I I think, examination of how
0: City Hall has worked in the past. Well, Dave alderman Burke has kept a low profile in recent months. Back in June, he pleaded not guilty to federal racketeering charges after being accused of abusing his City Hall clout for personal gain. Talk a little bit about what we know at this point, about how that federal those federal charges are progressing, if we know anything because it, it happened. It was this big bombshell that dropped, and then crickets
2: Well, I mean we're, we're sort of now at that point in a case like this where both sides are sort of sizing one another's arguments up and, and kind of surveying the evidence that's out there and and, and I, I I would not be surprised to see this thing you know last for. Months, if not years, before we have a clear direction about whether there's a, a conviction and whether there's an appeal and what have you i mean this this situation with the uh, the the ethics board action i mean it certainly is a slap on the wrist and is is by far a much less severe worry on ed burke 's mind than than what he's facing from the feds but bottom line is even though that it's it 's only a two thousand dollar fine is the thing is any reputable alderman is not going to want to have their ethics laid bare this way. That's the reality here. The sanction itself, the $2,000, doesn't amount to a hill of beans for these people. But the fact is that there was a finding like this, it should be an embarrassment to any any public office holder who cares about their reputation.
0: A.D., what do we know about Alderman Ed Burke's position in city council right now and how His power has shifted since Mayor Lightfoot took office, since these charges of federal racketeering. What do we know?
3: It's been drastic. I wrote about how the lobbying game has changed in Chicago. There are a lot of lobbyists who can't go straight to Ed Burke to get things done anymore. He is no longer the chair of the finance committee. His reputation has been sullied for his private business. He stepped down as a partner at his law firm. He used to be the man that would guide parliamentary procedure if stuff started getting off the tracks in city council. He was the first person to stand up and steer it right back with a motion here, a motion there, and then a history lesson that would last for 20 minutes. He is no longer that person. He is no longer sitting directly in front of the mayor. He sits in a regular seat, just like every other alderman, and speaks very rarely. He spoke up twice at this past city council meeting, and all of us kind of perked up like, oh, haven't heard that voice in a while.
1: Well, because the last time he rose to speak on the council floor, the mayor basically said, when I want to hear from you, I will ask, please sit down, which really for, you know, somebody who doesn't spend as much time as A.D. and I do in the chambers is really an amazing sort of slap in the face to the man who used the city council meetings as his own personal show you know, to perform. Right. To demonstrate what he thought was important about Chicago. And we in the press box did all check that he, he could not resist rising to applaud Miguel Cervantes, the star of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton himself, along with every other alderman, it seemed like. And then, you know was feeling comfortable enough to deliver a little bit of a soliloquy about the history of the Chicago Fire Department and the history of the Chicago Theater District. That was a flash of the old Ed Burke that we haven't seen in a long time. But he's not finance committee chairman anymore. He rarely attends committee meetings. The fact that his clout has been so diminished, I think, is a new reality that a lot of people are still struggling to sort of figure out how to cope with.
0: Let's turn to some county news. The Cook County Board of Commissioners voted to approve a 3% cannabis retailers tax during yesterday's board meeting. Heather, what can you tell us about that?
1: Well, they hit pot sales in Cook County with the maximum 3% rate. So on most of the most popular marijuana items, and I feel like I'm talking about stuff I don't quite have a whole lot of experience, mom, if you're listening. Um, Basically, the tax rate would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 percent. So there are a lot of people who say that this will encourage a black market, that it will keep private drug dealers. uh, Their business will flourish because, of course, they won't have to pay all these things. However, Tony Preckwinkle, the, the county board president, said this is just what we need to do because it's quite possible, if not probable that the county will bear an increased cost of additional DUIs or additional medical emergencies. And so much of what Cook County provides is that the poorest people will go to the county hospital system and they will not have health insurance. They won't have the means to pay and it will be county taxpayers that end up bearing that burden.
0: Well, the new Cook County tax is in addition to state and Chicago or suburban government taxes. So that means recreational pot in Cook County could be taxed at up to to 40 percent. And David, it seems like there's this needle they're trying to thread where there's projected revenue from marijuana sales, but at the same time, they don't want to discourage people from buying it. So how is that working out when you have these different levels of government all putting that tax on?
2: Well, I mean, if you judge the the fact that every single one of these dispensaries had lines around the block, I don't think people at the moment care all that much. And, you know, when when state legislators and Governor Pritzker put this on the table and, and approved and enacted it, you know, they always said that this, this wasn't about the money that it would raise, but clearly that's a big component here. And, you know, I, I sort of look at this as no different than cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes are taxed at a, if you're a smoker, it's painful by design to buy a pack of cigarettes. And in this case, it's going to be painful to buy marijuana by design because, you know, the state wants to cash in on this. It is a revenue stream. I mean, I know initially, I think the Department of Revenue has estimated that it could raise as much as 375 or $400 million a year for state coffers. Now, that doesn't even take into account what the city and counties, uh, what they would expect to raise from it. So, you know, this is just part of the price of doing business. And, and yes, it might create a black market, but, you know, people for years have been crossing the Indiana border for cigarettes or for gasoline that's cheaper. And it may happen here too. The key is whether the governments that, that are doing the taxation. Uh, have the appetite to enforce this and go after the, the illegal sales of, of this?
3: We should keep in mind that there's this tax on the county and in other collar counties. A lot of places doesn't kick in until July, so mm-hmm. people might not experience sticker shock until then. As for the revenue, the county board is not counting on any in 2020 because of the way the state's remittance works. So they'll start taxing it in July but might not get revenues until September, October, and the fiscal year ends. Then the county has set up a cannabis commission to kind of get at these equity questions that we talked about earlier that Chicago City Council and a lot of state lawmakers care a lot about to figure out, all right, what's the best way to use this money? We saw in Evanston they had, they're considering a reparations fund using cannabis um, cannabis revenues. Um, I'll be excited to see how this works out and whether it really does address these equity concerns we've been talking about for months
0: now. Well, Mayor Lightfoot seemed to suggest she might be open to lowering taxes on recreational marijuana in Chicago. Let's listen.
1: Look, I think there's plenty of opportunity if the necessary to go back and make the necessary tweaks, but this is so early on that I think we just have to
3: let things play out.
0: Heather, I mean, how reliant is Chicago on? taxes on a recreational pot?
1: So uh, much like the county, the city is only counting on somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million, which is much like Ed Burke's $2,000 fine, a drop in the proverbial bucket. I think the bigger issue is, is that the city is concerned about handling the costs Are there going to be crimes like the one that we saw at the Mocha dispensary in Logan Square where $100,000 in cash evaporated? Is this going to be a net drain on the city's coffers as opposed to a benefit? So the mayor wants to be cautious about this. But there are certainly several aldermen who think that the taxes are too high and do want to see them reduced so that it's not fueling that black market. However... I got to think it's going to be a little bit tough to reduce taxes on like cuz this is really a sin tax like Dave was talking about. Mm-hmm. When you're asking people to potentially pay more for all sorts of different things, real estate transfers, you know, the city is not in a great situation financially, so to cut taxes for something that it seems weird to refer to marijuana as a luxury item, but a luxury item, I think that's going to be a tough lift.
0: Well, Dave, representation in the legal weed industry has been an ongoing issue, and Governor Pritzker has touted the state's social equity program. How is that playing out so far? Do we have a sense of that?
2: I think there's still a lot of work to be done to see how this all shakes out. I mean, I I think the folks who are the big money behind you know, marijuana in Illinois, they are white they are they are not diverse it's 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 clear as can be I mean it reminds me a lot of the way the casino industry in Illinois took shape back in the early nineties late eighties where where you had sort of this privileged few with clout who got in the door first and made their money and and I think that it, there just is a feel that this this kind of new market that's being established could work very much the same way unless steps are taken to kind of let everybody in on this.
0: And AD, that's part of the issue, right? It's going to be, what does this look like in the long term? Because there's just not enough information about what the social applicants right. licenses are going to look like, who's going to be involved, what ownership looks like right. under that model. And also
3: what governments can do to actually help people. How much capital is the city of Chicago, for example, willing to put up to help dispensary owners or cannabis consumption site owners or cultivators or infusers? What can the city or the state do to really help these folks? How much can they push? How much can they push without uh, dissuading folks from wanting to set up shop here? Mayor Lori Lightfoot has said she wants to start a cannabis co-op in the city of Chicago. She wants to help uh, small business owners use existing grants and funds to get off the ground. But as we've seen with these debates with aldermen, they don't think it's enough.
0: You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. Our panel today includes A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business, Heather Sharon of The Daily Line, and WBEZ's Dave McKenney. Some other stories we're watching today. Illinois' two U.S. senators, both Democrats, voted in favor of a new United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement yesterday. Senator Tammy Duckworth says the plan is good for farmers, manufacturers, and working people. Senator Dick Durbin says Illinois supports more than 325,000 jobs. The agreement, known as U.S. SMCA, allows for free trade among the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Some Illinois lawmakers are calling for greater public access in courtrooms. The bill proposed by Democratic Congressman Mike Quigley would require cameras to be permitted in the Supreme Court and all federal appellate courts. And environmentalists say more than a dozen Chicago aldermen are backing a proposed ordinance to ban styrofoam and limit single-use plastics. If approved, the ordinance would go into effect in 2021. Let's turn now to the latest from Springfield. Governor J.B. Pritzker sought and received the resignation of a top cabinet official for not reporting a former lobbyist's 2012 email that refers to the, quote, rape and champagne. Dave, what's the latest?
2: The director you're talking about is John Sullivan. He's from Quincy, a longtime Democrat, former state senator, who really got caught up in the crossfire from this, this really controversial email that WBEZ uncovered. The email was written by a former lobbyist named Michael McClain, a close confidant of House Speaker Michael Madigan. McClain was going to bat for a state employee at the time in 2012 who had problems. Some disciplinary action was pending. And McClain made this reference about how he had been a loyal person for the administration. It was the Pat Quinn administration had kept quiet about a rape in Champagne and ghost payrolling. And where Sullivan got immersed in this, he showed up in an email exchange that WBEZ got just recently, you know, and then acknowledged that he he had also gotten this email that McLean wrote, sent to his personal email account. And so when Pritzker found out about this, he sought and got Sullivan's resignation. Because, and how did
0: Sullivan explain not passing the email on?
2: Well, he said that, you know, at the time in 2012, late July, early August of 2012, he was undergoing cancer treatments and, and just didn't read to the end of the email, which is where this reference to the rape and champagne was at. And Pritzker's point was that if you saw that, you should have been under some obligation to report it somewhere to, to law enforcement, to the, the inspector general. Sullivan didn't do that. And that, that's why he took the fall.
0: And tell us a little more about what's happening on the criminal investigation side since this email came to light.
2: Well, I think a lot of people are trying to understand still what exactly happened here. What was the rape that McLean was citing? And what we know is there, there's an, uh, an active inspector general investigation underway. They're being assisted by the Illinois State Police and the Champaign County State's Attorney's Office is also involved. And it may be one of those things where we never get to the bottom of it. And you know, what's striking about all of this is aside from McLean, who uh, my colleague Dan Mihopoulos and I had this chance encounter with uh, in the last couple of weeks, nobody on that email uh, has, has chosen to call, you know, call us back or speak publicly about anything that was said there. And so as long as people stay, are staying silent about it – We may never get to the bottom of this.
0: Well, Governor Pritzker said he was, quote, disturbed that Sullivan had known about the 2012 email and had taken no action. Here he is talking about the investigation.
2: This McLean email is emblematic of a culture that has been poisonous in Springfield for far too long. Those who protect the culture, those who tolerate it, those who promote it, well, they'll have to answer for their role in it.
0: Heather, talk about the impact this is having in Springville.
1: Well, it's one more chink in the armor of House Speaker Michael Madigan that everybody thought was impenetrable. Um, It certainly uh, has created calls for him to resign. Greg Hines at Crane Chicago Business said he should step down, as did the Daily Herald's editorial board. The question becomes, at what point does he become such a liability for the Democratic Party? Does some sort of You know, massive shift happen. And is he, you know, sort of allowed to resign or encouraged to resign? All the while, uh, this separate federal investigation swirling around ComEd and lobbying is going on, sort of on a parallel track, it seems. The larger question, I think, is what impact this will have on the looming battle for the graduated income tax. That is sort of the pink elephant in the room because the Republicans are preparing to make their case that a essentially Illinois lawmakers are too corrupt to be trusted with additional income tax revenue and that this should be rejected by voters in November that because they just don't they they're not going to spend it correctly and every time one of these sort of relevations comes out it sort of adds fuel to that fire which is why I think you heard Governor Pritzker speak about sort of this almost as if there's a crime syndicate at work in Springfield because his legacy is very much on the line with that graduated income tax, because if that does not pass, Illinois' finances are uh, in even more of an uncertain circumstances as they are now.
0: Well, before we wrap up, I want to make sure we talk about a leader in Springfield who is Stepping down, uh, John Cullerton's replacement—he's the Illinois Senate President—will be chosen on Sunday. Who's in the running right now, Dave?
2: It's down to a race between the Senate Majority Leader Kimberly Lightford. You know, if she gets it, I think everybody in the media is going to have a hard time distinguishing between Lightford and Lightfoot. We're going to constantly be—I've <laughs> already over made that. this mistake. We, we make that mistake all the time, so bear with us if that happens. You have pity. <laughs> the other person uh, in the running is State Senator Don Harmon, who is a Democrat from Oak Park, and. Sunday is the point when when they say they're going to elect somebody. But right now, I don't think that this thing has been decided yet. What does the
0: process look like?
2: It's all behind closed doors. And what happens is that they sort of, as a caucus, there are 40 members in this Senate Democratic caucus. They have to decide amongst themselves. And in order for this new Senate president to be elected, there have to be 30 votes in the Senate to get that. And right now, neither one of these people has a commitment from 30 Senate Democrats. Harmon has raised more money. Then Lightford. Lightford has, uh, you know, broad African-American support. She's breaking or setting a milestone if she's the one as, as the first uh, African-American female to be a legislative leader in Springfield. So there's a lot on the line here. It's a very powerful position. Anything of importance, you know, relies on a, on an active and, and aggressive Senate president.
0: Well, Cullerton was elected president of the Senate back in 2009. So he's stepping down after more than four decades in Springfield. A.D., just talk about the power shift that's happening right now. We have a a new governor who's just got a year under his belt. We're going to have a new Senate president. Heather was talking about some of the controversies surrounding Michael Madigan. Unpack a little bit of this for us.
3: It's a time of power shift in Chicago and Springfield. Everything's kind of, um, everything's changing. And one aspect I want to pay attention to that we'll never really know because we can't be in the room is Who sides with who in these first key votes for Senate president? Are those folks all rewarded with key committee leaderships? How does this impact fundraising going ahead? Um, That's a big, big role for the Senate president. How do they tackle ethics? This is going to be a big thing that Hannah Meisel's been covering over at the Daily Line. How will they tackle lobbying? How will they confront this combat investigation no matter how it plays out? Who else might go from the Illinois Senate? Who else might go from the Illinois House? It's just a time of massive change.
0: That's A.D. Quig, government and politics reporter at Crane Chicago. Also with us, Daily Line Managing Editor and City Hall reporter Heather Sharone, and WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. And that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. And that's it for today's Reset. We're expecting some snow and ice tonight and tomorrow, so please be careful out there. And it just might be the perfect weekend to catch up on any Reset podcast you may have missed or listen to the new one we'll drop this Sunday with Chicagoan and SNL cast member Chris Redd. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.